With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, I'm David Evans and welcome to the media series from Wolves Fancast. This is episode four, Documentaries and Features. Now there's so many stories to talk about in football and it's the documentaries and features that bring those to life. But how do you put them together? How do you find them? And how do you bring them to your audience? Johnny Phillips is one of those people who does that for Sky Sports and I sat down with him at Sky Studios recently to talk about this subject and many more. And as always, guest views are their own. Firstly, let's talk about your career. How did you get into kind of this world? Was it something you always wanted to do or was it something that just kind of just happened? Well, television sort of just happened. That was sort of by accident. But I always wanted to get into the media. Um, I was more interested initially in writing. um, And I went to Leeds University to do a media degree. Mm. And there were various sort of vocational uh, work placements and what have you from that. And it was, a, it, was a good, it was a good degree. We learned a lot about radio and, and print journalism as well, less so about television. And then from there, I worked for a local press agency while I was still a student um, up there called Interactive Media Services that back in the day did the old team talk phone lines, mm. you know, the yeah. Num- yeah, 9 yeah. all that sort of stuff. And, and they did all that sort of thing as well as uh, there were contacts within that press agency to go out and do other stuff so I worked for a couple of uh, local radio stations Viking FM yep. covering Grimsby yep. Town and Minster FM covering York um, so it was always a radio led thing in fact the very last shift I ever did on that for Viking FM was when Wolves played Grimsby in the first day of the 96-97 yes. season yep. and Bully got his hat trick yep. so that was brilliant that was the last job I ever did for them that may have been why I did it was the last <laughs> job I ever who knows um, and then there was it, there was chance to progress around uh that and it was all great and then one day a mate who'd left that agency was working as uh the football league reporter for sky and he just rang me out of the blue and said there's a, a couple of uh editorial assistant jobs up for grabs and it was a bit of a backward step from what i was doing in terms of reporting but a chance to progress mm, and he yeah. said it'd be worth sending your cv in and trying to get an interview which i did and i came down and i joined the football league team and it was great, but I always made it clear that I wanted to get back into reporting and back through. And Sky, to their credit, were great about giving mm. you the opportunity. So I sort of initially started out doing Vox Pops on the Football League and really basic reporting stuff and then just moved up and to my sort of job today, which mm. is half on Soccer Saturday and half doing the um, Premier League touchline reporting mm. for Sky Games to go out live in Ireland and on the Saturday yeah. afternoon stuff. So it's been great. It's been a really good mix. And a lot of people will know you from Sock and Saturday, from the yeah. features and the reports you do. Yeah. In terms of a feature then, how does it work? What's the kind of the planning aspect? Do Sky come to you and say, we've got a player or a manager of X team 
Could you go all? Is there kind of a two way where you can come with an idea? Yeah, and see it's, how it it's works? definitely two way. We have three hours to fill. So Soccer Saturday goes on air at midday, comes mm. off air at six, and the matches don't start till three. So we've got three hours of build up to fill. So there's a lot of features and interviews that mm. need doing. Um, as rights holders, we get access to players and managers um, through something called the broadcast preview period mm. each week that we can apply to. But we wouldn't just carpet bomb every, carpet bomb every single club asking for a, uh, an interview because there's sometimes where editorially there's just no need mm. and we don't want it. So it depends what players are available. And then also, and this is what more where the reporters come into it, we can then speak to our producer uh, and say, listen, I, I've had an idea to do this or there's a nice story there. Can we cover that? And it's a two-way thing with the producer. In a perfect world, from my perspective, as long as the less I'm being told what to do, the better, because mm. it means the ideas I'm yeah. putting forward are being taken on board and I can just get on with the job. But there are weeks when, you know, you can't think of something new every week where we just take an interview that's available to us mm. and then we'll go and do a fairly straightforward interview in a sanitised environment mm. at a club's training ground. But the best ones are the ones where you've put a bit of thought into it yeah. and come up with something a bit novel. And they tend to be lower down or okay. away yeah. from Premier League training grounds. And what is the the planning process? And so you you know you're going to go to an to a club or speak to a player. What is the kind of planning process before you arrive in terms of research and and the theme you probably want to get out of that? that it, depending on the interview, if it's um, if the interview is based around a team's performance or a player's own performance, that's a fairly straightforward interview. Mm. So, for example, if one week uh, I don't know Wolves of one three nil and so and so scored a hat trick and we're going to interview him. That'll be a lot about his performance, his hat trick, what it's done for him, the confidence of the team, and that's straightforward. Uh, if we're going to a club that's just sacked a manager, we'll need to know from the player what was going on, or you know, as much as he'll tell us what was going on. Um, so it, it depends what the editorial slant is from the club. But if it's a feature that's nothing to do with the football, and mm. uh, which are my favourite ones, then you just try and tell as interesting a story as possible about why we're speaking to this player so the one the the last one of those that I did last season was uh funny enough it was connected with Wolverhampton we went and covered a Sunday league game Mm. um and they had the oldest set of match officials um that we could find they had a 68 year old ref a 72 year old linesman and a 79 year old linesman okay and it was brilliant and it was a great standard it was Pentandori against AFC Jacks it's a brilliant standard for Sunday League. They, the they wiped the floor with my Sunday League team. <laughs> and um, and they had the, the Wolverhampton Referees Association. I'd given a talk there a, a month or so earlier, and one of the linesmen had put his hand up and said, you know, there's three of us officiating still. We've mm. got to be as old, old as there are out there. And I thought, that's a great story. Let's go and film them. So we just went and, and filmed them. We mic'd up the referee, and and it was great fun. We, we, we chatted to the both teams the Philip Reed from the Wolverhampton Referees Association and the, and the match officials. And it was a really mm. nice, colourful feature. And that's just telling a story. Yeah, And you get that impression now that it's not just about going to speak to a player about a certain event. People want to know more about the stories and the untold things that are going on at different football clubs. Yeah, we always get the best response from them. Um, certainly, you get your big name interviews, which you go and do. Uh, like, you know, like um, last season, I really enjoyed speaking to uh, Jurgen Klopp a bit and Arsene Wenger they'll always get good viewing figures mm. um, but the really interesting ones I find are the sort of human interest yeah. stories where something something amusing or something colourful happens I mean if we've got time there was one a couple of seasons ago where we went to the Scilly Islands off mm. the coast of Cornwall yeah. it's about a two and a half hour boat ride and they've got the smallest league in the world there there's just two teams 
who play each other every week. Yeah, it's, I think I've actually heard about this. Yeah, carry on, yeah, carry on yeah, anyway. Yeah. So there's two teams, and they play each other on the same pitch every week. And brilliantly, they've got an 18 league season and a cup competition. And one of the cup <laughs> competitions is two legged, so it's just brilliant. And it, it's 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 all very much tongue in cheek. And we went there to film this mm. league, and um, they played on this the only pitch on the on the biggest island, St Mary's in the Scilly Islands. And then as we were filming the game. Uh, streams of bird watchers started appearing at the side of the pitch with binoculars and telescopes and we're thinking what's going on here this is a bit odd none of them paying attention to the football they were looking off into the sea or into the trees so we got chatting to a few of them and it was the migration season right and the silly islands is basically the hot spot for rare migrants blown off course from the atlantic that turn up here and all these twitches had turned up over this weekend so we ended up chatting to them and getting them on camera saying well you're not interested in the football and all this and then as it transpired there was a really really rare bird had pitched up that weekend called a red flanked blue tail so we found out where it was it was on a neighboring island and one of the all basically all of the footballers they work in the boat industry mm. or the tourist industry uh, and one of them was a boatman and it's his job the next day was to take a boat to this island with a load of twitches. So, so we've got to, go and come, got to go and film this now. So the next day, after long after the football had finished, we jumped on a boat with about 200 twitches and to this neighbouring island. And we're running across the island through undergrowth, over, you know, over moorland, everywhere to try and find this mm. bird with a camera and, and the boatman. And it was brilliant. And we found the bird. And um, while we were there, we met one twitcher who said every year there's a bird watchers versus islanders match mm. that they have at the end of the season, which was... A, Sadly, it was a week or two later, so we couldn't film that, where the bird watchers play the Islanders in this famous game. And it's not unusual for the match not to finish when news of a rare bird pitches up. <laughs> right, and, and the okay. bird is just, you know... What, well, match abandoned after yeah, half an hour? <laughs> so it's things like that. So we went there to tell a story, and then another one emerged, yeah. which was a bit more interesting and a bit more colourful. And it's little, little things like that. So you, you go and try and... When you do it, you're quite fluid about what you want. You go mm. with an idea, but if something interesting crops up yeah. while you're there so you know we got the story about the smallest league in the world and um but we also got this story of what they actually did in their day jobs ferrying these mad bird watchers around so it's, it's all good fun and i guess that's what must be so rewarding about this role you do is that you can go to uh, an interview and you kind of sometimes don't know what you're going to expect you probably know you're going to do speak to a certain player about a certain topic but you never know what's going to come around the corner. Yeah, could... absolutely. And, and some of the players are really, really engaging. And um, it tends more to be the, the foreign lads, in fairness. But um, the, you get some really nice stories, really, really nice um, backstories to why players are here and what they're doing. Uh, Sergio Torres was a memorable one. He's an Argentinian player who played for Wickham and Peterborough back in the day. And he... Um, he, he basically tried to make it as a professional footballer in this country. And he arrived... He arrived with $300 in the back of his pocket um, and ended up for the first year in uh, in England, sort of not quite sleeping rough, but in, in very dodgy sort of backpacker oh, right. places, yeah. stacking shelves at Boots, one of his jobs as he tried to get um, trials at non-league clubs and eventually got taken on by Basingstoke. And then Basingstoke played a pre-season friendly against Wickham mm. and the Wickham manager, John Gorman at the time, spotted him and took him on it's things like that um so a lot of players have nice backstories uh and and talk about really interesting things billy Keir at accrington last year um you know their top scorer and their talisman as they won the league but also had a real problem with uh in terms of his personal life was had, had depression and suffered oh, okay. it really badly mm. and a, a year or two earlier john coleman had given him 
lots of time off. Just said, just take as much as you want off. No pressure to come back. Uh, and he did. And he, you know, he, he found a way of living with his depression, came mm. back and helped them get promoted. So there's lots of, they're more human interest yeah. stories. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think they're more, I find personally more interested than talking about Four five one and four four yeah, two. Yeah, yeah. And wasn't that a great goal you scored? But there's a place for everything, you know. Yeah, a, you know exactly. Other, yeah. Other people prefer that, you know. There's a place for everything. So when you turn up to do an interview with someone, um, how important is it to also think about all the different things that go on with that interview? Or, for example, the, the different shots, or how you want the style of, the, of that piece to look. Yeah, that, that that that's crucial as well. The technical side, and in that sense, you're in the lap of the gods with the cameramen you mm. use, and you know you get to know cameramen really well who. Are, We've all got different skills at doing different things. Some can light an interview very well. Some are very good off their shoulder, getting in uh, amongst uh, things and, and making sure we don't miss the shot. Um, and there's lots of different cameramen that are, that are, that are great and you, you like using that. That's really, really important. So if, it, if it's an interview in a training ground in a room at the pretty much like this, a bog standard room. You want to light that nicely and give it a, mm. a, a nice look. So you need backdrops and lights and the rest of it. But, for instance, the Wolves documentary we made, a lot of that was um, just on the cuff with the, the cameraman with his camera mm. uh, walking around the place, getting access to stuff and getting in there. And uh, and you needed that the, the, the cameraman to have those skills and not to miss something that was yeah. happening. There's nothing worse than something really good happening and you miss it. But mm. again, you, do, you know, you, you've got to sort of, you're on the fly. You yeah. don't know that something good's going to mm. happen. Um, Willie Bowley stood out from that. From the thing we yeah, made with Wolves. That, that he, when he's, when yeah. the, not the injury bit. The, the, he was just the, having a massage. Yeah, the massage he had nowhere yeah. to go. He hates doing interviews. He had nowhere to go. But my cameraman was great. And he, he sort of stuck his cam- camera in his face. And I tried to interview him. And he was having none of it. But we needed to be there. And we yeah, needed yeah. to try it. Whereas, uh, you know, had we not tried that, we wouldn't have got a nice little clip of him refusing to do the interview. So it's little things like yeah. that. Um, so that is really important. Uh, and there's all technical sides. There's different quality cameras you use. There's different high motion shots you get. The Wolves lads at the moment um, producing lots of really good videos on mm. um, on their own club channel with a lot of nice high-mo stuff they get at games. Everything has a style and, mm. you know, it's different ways of doing things. But that's that's crucial. On television, you know, there's no two ways about it. If the cameraman doesn't get you the shots and hasn't shot it in the way you want, it's, it's no good to mm. you. So for all that we can do all our prep and ask the right questions... We're dependent on the shots, mm. so we're hugely dependent on the quality of cameramen. And luckily, you know, we've got some great cameramen, especially in the Midlands as well, so it's good. When you go to interview someone, is there a certain way that you will try and set a question to get a, an answer that you would like for the feature? Or is it more the case of you set the question and you just kind of see what happens and see what answers they give? Yeah, I think um, you leave it quite open-ended to start with and see what you get, mm. but be prepared to go back to it yeah so i'd be more inclined rather than to go in with a direct way giving them the opportunity to answer it in their terms initially but then if you want to get a point if you want them to talk about a point specifically go back to the same question and ask them again and there's no harm doing that they don't mind that. as you can say well can you speak about this more fully or can you you know from this perspective see this mm. so you just go you can go just go back and back and back until mm. you get what you want but oh, quite quickly as well if they don't want to give you something or they're not capable of giving you something you can you, kind of pick that up you pick yeah. it up straight away and you just move on um, so yeah it, yeah. it, it varies and um, there's they're quite you know they're quite uh, open ended sit downs when you just sit down with a footballer you've got a certain amount of time but within that time Unless you've been told by the press officer beforehand, there's nothing really too off mm. limits, and it's it's very often that footballers are, are more happy to talk about things than than the press officers are happy to let them. 
with with programs like Soccer Saturday, you would say it's it's very much like a, a mag that that first three hours is very much like a magazine type yeah, program, that's and you've right. got other programs similar to that, such as like Football Focus on the BBC. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is it a challenge to try and think of new ways to do features and interviews that perhaps you know they may be trying to do something similar, other programs want to do similar, but also the way it's put together is different every time compared to the ones you've done previously yeah as well. definitely that's a that's a, a lot of pressure on that and that's in the post-production way that a lot mm. of that's with things like graphics and the music pieces you make up and the rest of it football focus is really interesting because they they've got you know a huge industry standard that was sort of the model back in the day um, when i was a kid growing up a lot i love football focus it was really look forward to that every every uh, saturday and the fact that it's still there and still going strong is brilliant and uh, they've got slightly less time so they have less features they may maybe only have a couple of features so they mm. they can put more into it it's funny enough when we, we've been both on a job where we're interviewing the same player you can see that there'll be me and a cameraman to do the job for soccer saturday but for football focus they'll very often have the reporter the cameraman a producer and a sound man so they'll, they'll obviously go in with uh, greater staffing levels because they've got they're less stretched resources yeah. wise we'll maybe do eight to 12 features a week between us so the costs high mm. um so we have to do it as cheaply as possible where sometimes something like football focus you can see because they're putting all their efforts into one feature they can really go at it um but yeah it, it, it is a challenge to get stuff looking different and make stuff uh appealing uh and very often we'll have the set interviews which are what we call painted interviews which are just an interview with paints covered it of action and match action and they're the they're the real bog standard ones mm. and then you work from there up to stuff that maybe use a lot more graphics um they'll use a lot more locations mm. have a lot more people in the interview itself rather than just one uh subject but yeah it's a real challenge mm. but um but it's a nice challenge and it's good and it's good to see you know football focus still going really strong as well and would you be part of that of the post-production sitting in kind of looking at how it's made afterwards yes yeah. so here we are in the edit suite so it, this is where we may be different to other companies maybe uh, I don't know because I don't know how football focus work but we film it bring it back log it all mm. so everything we've shot we log which can be quite laborious in the case of the walls thing I made there was hours and hours of footage and you log everything with what you want and then you do a sort of paper edit of how you want it to be put together and then you come into this this suite that we're sitting in now with an editor and you tell him what you're looking for you've got your time codes of everything and the editor presses the buttons and does the technical side of it and then we'll I'll put the voice on I'll have picked the music that I want on the piece so I'll bring the music in for him and we'll mix it all down and if there's graphics that I need my editor to do he'll do some graphics so yeah we sit together in the suite often for hours um on a Friday with all the stuff we've shot in the week, uh, editing the, the final package. Mm. And something we've talked about or mentioned is the, the two documentaries you did recently for Sky yeah. on Wolves, which obviously a lot of Wolves fans will know of. Other teams may have kind of seen it on Sky. Yeah. Um, walk, work, working with Wolves and yeah. in the Wolf Pack. Yeah. How, firstly, how did the first one um, come about? What was the idea behind it? Was it kind of you approached the club or was it kind of a two-way conversation? Yeah, no, um, I approached the club not long after the end of season dinner uh, a couple of years ago when I had a brief chat with um, Paul Berry, the, the media officer at the time, and, and Laurie Dalrymple, the MD. And we're always keen to... Behind the scenes stuff at a high level is always is always sort of gold in a way. Mm. If you can get something a bit, bit behind the scenes where you get access that you don't normally get, that's what we really like. And it does really well with viewers as well. So I had this idea under the new owners. I thought, I wonder if they're more open than traditional British owners who just don't let you in to do stuff and mm. British managers on, on one level. 
aren't massively keen. So I just, I spoke to Laurie and Dalrymple and the MD at Walls and he was brilliant. Uh, we had a, a meeting in London and I just put forward an idea. Would it be maybe something um, that we could do around, say, maybe three days of filming, a couple of days down at the training ground and then one of your pre-season friendlies get in the dressing room. So it's not a competitive match, but it is a match that's important mm. and get a feeling of what the what's going on in the dressing room. And, uh, and Laurie was great. Laurie and, and Paul Berry had been speaking about this and they were, they were great. And Laurie took it to Jeff Shee and Jeff embraced it. And then, of course, you have to get Nuno on board and Nuno brilliantly. Bear in mind, he'd only just come into this club in England, was the fourth manager Wolves mm. had had in, in a short space of time uh, and was George Mendes' man. There wasn't necessarily a lot going for him at mm. this time. You know, there, were, there was a lot of suspicion around yeah. Wolves at that time and certainly about what was going on. And he was just brilliant. And he said, yeah, come in shoot whatever you want which again was amazing and then if there's something at the end of it that in particular that we don't want to mm. go to where we'll speak to you but yeah. he just gave us the run of the training ground and the match day dressing room uh, and, we, and it was it was great we got you know really nice access and, and, and hopefully we did Wolves justice because we you know we, we were lucky to some degree we didn't know that Wolves would take off the way they, they did last season but it was nice just to get there and you did get that sense early on that something good was building just mm. watching the Watching even the fitness coach Antonio Diaz and watching his work and seeing what he did and you just thought it is different mm. uh, and something could happen here. and then of course when it came to the second one because we'd earned the trust. I was going to say how, how did that one come? Was that was something was that always planned or was that something no. near the end of the season you thought Ang, there's an opportunity here? Yeah, the the the, um, the executive producer of the football league at Sky came to me and said, "Do you think they'll be up for another one?" Um, just when it became clear that Wolves were the story of mm. the of the championship but in the football league last year so then it, again it was a case of going back to Laurie and saying are we all right to come in again and and that was much more straightforward because Nuno had seen how we worked and mm. because Laurie had seen it and Jeff Shee they were they were fine about that and we went in we, we had to make it slightly different we brought in a few more external components to it and, and, and made it as different but it was nice way of top and tailing what's I thought was a quite a memorable season um, and I think it worked quite nicely and it, it sort of showcased the very best of walls. Mm. And I think if other clubs were open to that, to showcase what they've got, rather than be wary of letting cameras in dressing rooms, that that, that would make it, um, that would make for such much more colourful um, mm. television and much more interesting television. So hopefully, if other clubs have seen it and want to do something down the line, maybe we could do As a As a football fan doing this role, when you go behind the scenes and you speak to these people, and especially perhaps to an extent with the, with the Wolves one, does it kind of oddly break the illusion that what you think of what's going on as a fan to then you see the reality? Yeah. Not, that there's nothing, not that there's nothing dodgy going on, but you <laughs> yeah. you have this kind of perception as a fan and you go behind the scenes and because you've perhaps done it for so long now, yeah, that kind of fancy it, element of the fan has, has it gone away in a yeah, sense? Yeah, it, it, does, it does take the fan side out of it. I mean, I still get hugely starstruck when I go... Meeting these characters, like Klopp in particular mm. last season, I remember, you know, meeting you. Who Klopp does not love Klopp? Yeah, really, on, yeah. On, and, and I did quite a lot of interviews with him, either in tunnels after the match or up at Anfield, and it was great. And that you still get starstruck when you see these characters, but um, but it does strip away the veneer very much so, um, and probably brings an air an air of cynicism into the job, which which isn't bad, but it, it, it's not particularly good either. You sort of you see it for what it is, and it's a profession to people. Mm. So as a supporter. When I was a supporter before I did this, you know, you thought the players and the managers cared about the club 
as much as you did. And they don't. They care about the club while they're working for them. But when they move to a different club, they'll care for that mm. club. You know, yeah. they're professional and they can't be expected to care about it in the way a supporter does. Mm. So you accept that. And you, you do see things that go on. When things aren't going well, certainly. It, Wolves last year was great. And you just saw, saw how much everybody involved with Wolves bought into what was going on, loved what was going on. And it was fantastic. Um, but there are times in the not too recent past when things haven't been going well at Wolves. Mm. And you can you can see what's going on with players who just obviously don't want to be there, don't care, uh, and that that brings a level of cynicism mm. in um, to the job. So that it, I suppose it um, it does yeah strip away the veneer. Yeah. And when you have to go to do features for teams who perhaps aren't doing as well or struggling, is there a sense of awkwardness? Yeah, you, yeah. You turn up and you think oh, I've got to set oh, the tone yeah. correct here and. I get the feeling behind, within the place already that it's not great. Yeah, it's not fun. I remember towards the end of last season going to do Zerd and Shakiri at Stoke, and they were they were they were hanging by a thread, mm. and um, he didn't want to do the interview. I, I didn't want to do the interview, and Stoke didn't want to be having to put him up to do the interview, yeah. but he did. And there was a couple of us there interviewing him, and there's an element to that where you're not going through the motions, but certainly there's only so much he can say. You know the team are about to get relegated. What's he supposed to say? Mm. You know, that it, apart from like the, the classic cliches, yeah, it, it is. And there's only so much he can say, and there's only so much anyone can dress anything up. So you do go in and get out as quick as you can from those <laughs> ones. There are plenty of those. Um, and I just want to talk about your book, Saturday Afternoon Fever. Yeah, which we we talked about off air that I, I'd, I'd read a few years ago. Fantastic book from Thanks. my perspective because each chapter well actually I'll let you explain it what the premise of Saturday Afternoon Fever is and what people can find in the book yeah it was just um, I'd been doing Soccer Saturday for such a number of years and over those years accumulated what I thought was really interesting characters and stories that I'd covered people I thought had a story to tell that had only been told in a three or four minute feature on Sky that deserved to have their story told at at a greater level and the inspiration for it I was on a train to Swansea to interview um, somebody called James Thomas. Now, James Thomas was a striker for them when they were um, clinging for their Premier League, uh, for their Football League survival back in the early 2000s. They played Hull City on the last day of the season um, in 2003 and needed to win to stay up. They had to win. And it was at the Old Vetch, which is a really atmospheric uh, old ground. And it was packed that day. And this James Thomas character... A Swansea boy, born and bred, by the way, scored a hat-trick and they won 4-2 against Hull. And it was an amazing story and he got chaired off the pitch. But then as the, the years went by, he sort of disappeared from the consciousness locally and uh, and, and had to retire quite early. And he, when I went back to Swansea, he was an ambulance driver and he would had to give up the profession really early as his peers had gone through this great rise through mm. the years. So he was Leon Britton and Alan Tate's teammate. And when they got promoted to the Premier League under Brendan Rodgers, he was still old enough to play and could have been playing were it not for this injury. And I had to give up altogether and was now retrained and become an ambulance man. So we went to Swansea when, to do a piece about this. And we went in his, around on his ambulance rounds for the day, just sat in the ambulance with him as he very patience here and there and I came away from it thinking what you know what a story that is that no one really knew about and I thought I must you know I should write something about this and I had a load of these mm. and I just thought let's put a book together and over the course of a season I revisited some of my favorites mm. and met some new ones uh and that's how the, the book came about mm. and hopefully I just sort of 
you know, gave a bit of limelight to people who mm. I thought had great stories and yeah. were great characters. I mean, it's just, before we started recording, that story I told you about the Forest Green Rover story, about their, their, their incredible set of what they've got going on there. Yeah. And if you could tell us more about what it is that, that they, they've got going yeah, on. Yeah, well, the Forest Green are owned by an, an, an old eco-warrior, a fellow called Dale Vince, who, he was a bit of a traveller um, initially, and he, he, he started making his money by setting up uh, at Glastonbury a mobile phone unit before mobile phones were big. Uh, he, he took a mast along, a telephone mast along to Glastonbury one year and started selling phone calls, something something along those lines, um, and did it through a wind turbine. That was it. He did a, took a mobile wind turbine along, which then gave an electrical charges for people to yeah. then make calls. I think I think that was it. Anyway, he was a, he was a bit of an eco warrior, believed in wind turbines and the rest of it, and he went on eventually to run a uh, electricity firm called Ecotricity. And he also was a huge football fan and he took charge of Forest Green. And he's he's trying to make it the world's first sort of genuinely carbon neutral football club. So they don't use any fertilizer on the pitch. It's all natural fertilizer. Uh, rainwater is collected to use on the ground. Um, they they send this automatic lawnmower around the pitch, mulching the pitch and um, cutting the grass. They won't sell any uh, meat on site. It was, it was this to- bit yeah, that really got he, me. He's vegan, so everything has turned to vegan. So you go, you go to the ground, all the food is vegan, and it's brilliant food. You know, last time I was there, I had this amazing vegan curry. It was fantastic. And the players' diets, he's taken red meat out of the players' diets um, while they're at the ground. Mm. Obviously, they can do what they want after, but they, they're not served meat. And it's just fantastic uh, what, it, what he's done there. And it's just to try and bring a bit of awareness. And football fans who can be quite set in their ways, and some mm. still are, you know, when you go there, the most of them are just eating chips with curry sauce on it. They haven't really em- embraced all the various offerings. But it's just the saying, you know, once a week, give vegan food a go. Mm. You know, if you're a football fan, and you, you know, turn up and and it's brilliant. And he's just, he's just the, the thought process that's gone into this. Um, you know, to to make this uh, football club as, as carbon neutral as possible, and to you know, and make people more environmentally aware, mm. and yet doing it while taking the club up through the leagues as well. It's really hard. They don't, you know, they're not taking the easy way out of everything, and they're hoping to move to a stadium built entirely from wood in the not too distant okay. future. They've got this this site just off uh, the motorway uh, in Gloucestershire, and they're hoping for a, a stadium built entirely from wood. Wow! So yeah, who knows? <laughs> uh, just going back to the kind of interview process from when you know you've got to go speak to somebody. How long does the process take in terms of research, writing out your questions? What, if there was like a time frame, how does um, it take you a couple of days or a few hours? Yeah, for the for the for the, for the more obvious stories, for, for Shakiri, for example, it, it, it it's basically an hour. Mm. Uh, it's, it, the story was there in front of yeah. you. Stoke were about to get relegated. What are you going to do about it? You've got one game to save mm. yourself. It was it the job was done for things like um, maybe the feature where we went to the Scilly Islands and the rest of it, then you've got to delve into what's what sort of is going on at the Scilly Islands, find out the main em- the industry, the mm. employment, what what makes the, the island work, what's going on in terms of geographically, where are nice places to go and visit and get shots of. We had to set the scene, so we have to go and get the shots mm. while we're there. So we needed to make sure we filmed certain bits of it. And then there was a lot of back and forth with the play- uh, the organiser, the the player we organised it all with saying, can you make sure so-and-so is, is going to be here for us? We're going to need this, we're going to need that. Timings. So there's a lot, lots of preparation goes into that. I mean, tra- travel for something like that mm. was a, 
was a nightmare to organise. It was a 12-seater plane we ended up getting, and we only had a certain amount of baggage space for the camera equipment. So, again, we had to be careful what we took mm. out there. So things like that will take days on end to organise, but a, a straightforward interview is a matter of hours. Mm. And I guess that planning is so important because if you just turned up with a, a standard number of questions, you're just going to get the standard answers, yeah, aren't you? definitely. And if you try and mix it up and do the research and find some interesting things, you are then going to expand that out. Yeah, and you can get found out. And, and there was one occasion I, I really got found out, and it wasn't entirely my own fault, but I went up to Middlesbrough years ago to interview Mark Crossley, and I think... I think it later turned out he'd had a training ground bust up with whoever the manager was. It might have been Steve McLaren, I'm not sure. Anyway, and he didn't do the interview. So um, they put up the captain, Gareth Southgate, instead. And it, we were given a, a last-minute sort of um, heads-up on this. But I didn't know enough about what Gareth Southgate had been up to lately. So he, he comes in to do the interview, and we're unawares. And uh, my cameraman's still twiddling with the lights and... Um, you have to make small talk mm. with, with, with the player as you're there. So the player sat opposite me and I'm putting the microphone on and making small talk. England had played Holland the previous night in a terrible match. So I just asked him just to make small talk. I said, did you watch the England-Holland match? And he gave me this really strange look. And I just thought, and sort of didn't really respond. So I just sort of laughed. I said, well, no good, was it? And he sort of just nodded. And then we did the interview. And then at the end of the interview, the cameraman said to him, did you not realise he played in the match? <laughs> <laughs> and I did. Obviously, I didn't. So you know, there are times when you get caught short. Yeah. And you, you you make a bit of a fool of yourself if you're under prepped. Um, definitely, it's as well. You can never over prep for something. Mm. Uh, and and again, that's more. It cannot can can sometimes be more relevant for the uh, interviews that you're doing at the game, the touchline mm. interviewing, the, the tunnel interviewing before and after a match, when managers are a, are slightly. Um, they're slightly harder to work with. The, mm. the tensions are higher and the rest of it. You've got to be make sure you've covered all bases and know about selections and formations mm. and what's going on just so that you don't ask a question that they can throw back at you. And I guess post-match in those type of scenarios, depending on the result, you've got to change your tone of voice. Oh, massively, match. Yeah. Because again, if, if a rule hasn't gone the way that person wants, you've really got to be careful of how you were those questions. Yeah, the, there's so many like that, especially the, the sort of the larger-than-life characters in the Premier League. Um yeah, well, there's one with Jose Mourinho that springs to mind when they only drew Chelsea drew it home to Burnley 1-1. And he was fuming, he was fuming with the referee. They'd been ascending off and there'd been a few other decisions and he came out with a face like thunder and I sort of went in with a very open-ended question. The more open-ended opening question you can have for a tunnel interview, the better, just to mm. let, let them lead where they want to go rather than go in with a, you a diabolical type sort of line. Um, and he said, I'm not going to talk about the match, I'm just going to talk about these minutes. And he reeled out four separate times of minutes to me and said, that's all I want to talk about, which were obviously four incidents that he yeah, thought yeah, the referee yeah. let them down. And you sort of, you sort of heart sinks and think, well, you know, we've got two minutes to fill here. That's not going to get me anywhere. <laughs> so you then try and coax him around and there are various ways of, you know, trying. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. In the end, that particular one, he ended up giving us two minutes. He eventually got there when we mm. sort of said, you know, supporters want to hear a bit more and he was okay. But, you know, yeah. you've got to be sort of prepared for the, for the worst. And there's so many stories you've talked about there, where it's on Soccer Saturday or through your book. Is there a particular story or a particular report you've done that's your favourite that kind of really sticks out in your mind? Yeah, there is, definitely. Um, it was with Gretna, um, who were a sort of tiny Scottish team. And we initially got hold of the Gretna story when Jeff Stelling received a Christmas card from their striker, Kenny Duker. And this is going back to about 2003, 4. 
and they had a striker who was a part-time doctor. They were in the bottom division of Scottish football and they had a striker who also worked as a doctor and he scored loads of goals. And whenever he scored, Jeff Stelling used to say on television, are the good doctors scored for Mm. Gretna? And we got this Christmas card from him saying, can you give a shout out to my grandma? Um, She watches every week and she gets so proud. Granny May, she was called. And so Jeff gave me the Christmas card. She said, you should go up and do a piece with her. And we did. And she was she was a right character. And she was she was really good fun. And uh, we did this nice piece with Kenny and his grandma. And as a result of that, we got sort of, um, we got in with Gretna. And they were being bankrolled at the time by this real sort of philanthropist. But he, he had an old backstory. He was a fellow called Brooks Mileson, mm. a local businessman from just south of the border who ran an animal sanctuary in the gardens of his own house right, okay. where they took in all sorts of odd animals. Like we went to see him when he had kangaroos, ostriches, turtles, everything. He basically ran this am- exotic animal sanctuary for people who, who injured animals yeah. or animals that had been discarded. And he was a colourful story. And then the more we sort of got hold of Gretna, they were coming up the leagues at that stage. Mm. And it was an amazing story what they did. They were basically a part-time English football club in the Northern Premier League or the Northern League in uh, playing in England, even though they're just over the border in Scotland. 50 fans, 50 to 100 fans at best. The the manager, Rowan Alexander, was the groundsman and he did all that. But this philanthropist saw the club and decided, tried and failed to buy Carlisle. Mm. So he went to Gretna and he got them elected to the Scottish Football League. So you've got this tiny non-league team elected to the Scottish Football League. And, they, and he did give them a fair few... Quid, but not enough to for the success story to unfold as it did. They won every division all the way up to the Premier mm. League. When they were still in the third tier, they reached the Scottish Cup final. Okay. And they only lost on penalties to Hearts and they went into Europe as a you know, as a Scottish second division, which is the third tier of Scottish football team. And then they reached the Premier League and then they had to move to Motherwell because the ground was too small and it all fell apart and Brooks Mileson got ill, their their benefactor, and they folded. And this whole thing happened between 2002 and 2008. Mm. So all that happened in a six-year period, and they just disappeared. And there were lots of little side stories, like Kenny Duke being a doctor and never playing for the club full-time, only being part-time for them. And it was just a great story. So we I eventually made a documentary about the those eight, uh, six years at Gretna called The Club That Vanished. It's still, it's still on rolling around on uh, Catch Up on Sky. Uh, and I loved doing that. And it was just, I thought, what a story. And there were so many elements to it. And um, just this tiny team. And Gretna uh, sort of reformed as a tiny Lowland League club. And they're back where they were now. 50 fans turn up to watch mm. them in the Lowland League in Scotland. And it's this tiny village. You could drive through it in a minute. You know, <laughs> it's a tiny village. And I just made this story about um, what an amazing six years they were, where their world was turned upside down. They were playing in the UEFA Cup. They were... Hamden Park. 14,000 fans went to see them at Hamden Park when the village only has a population of 2,500. <laughs> so it was, that was, I think the Gretna story is definitely my yeah. favourite. The people listening to this, um, younger people who may listen thinking, oh, I'd really like to do a role that you do or get into industry and work in you know, Sky or BBC or you know, this kind of world, what tips would you give to people about getting a, a foot in the door, or what experience or um, skills do you think they need to start their journey? I think I think you do have to do some form of journalism qualification these days, or, or at the very least, a sort of maybe English, um, just just so you're equipped with the with with that level. And then 
I think it's it's all about opportunity and chance. I think you've got to be prepared for knockbacks um, and keep knocking on the door, asking for an opportunity. It's quite a competitive industry, so to get where you want to get, you're going to be rejected lots of times, mm. and that can be dispiriting. So you need a thick skin. Um, I was lucky in that I got wind of a job at Sky quite early on, so I didn't have to go through that knockback process. But I know lots of people who did, and it is hard, and it, you can question yourself and the rest of it. Working for free early on, you know, you've got to do placements, work placements, help out. There's all sorts of um, media entities that are happy for people mm. to work for them for free. They need they need the labour. So when you're a student or a sixth former or what have you, that sort of can be a way in. Uh, and just keep your ear to the ground. The, 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 there might always be an opportunity somewhere. There's a, an editor at Sky now who I do I do most uh, most of my editing with. He's a, a, a great lad, and he was a runner. I think during the Olympics at the 2012 Olympics and bumped into a Sky News reporter and he was just running just fairly menial running jobs um, and he pestered the Sky News reporter for his contact details, rang him up, got hold of him, said, you know, if there's any opportunities coming at Sky and eventually there were some freelance shifts available and he came in on Sky and he started off as a runner on Soccer Saturday, just making cups of tea and the rest of it and progressed up and now he's a really top-notch editor uh, who's cut some really nice stuff so there's it's being prepared to pester people ask people for opportunities it's hard i mean the initial advice i, I may have given years ago when i started might may not be applicable now there's lots the media's changed i mean mm. you know podcasts as, as we were saying uh, have, have come onto the scene and that's a way in which people who go from an amateur base with no formal journalistic mm. qualifications can then find that their podcast becomes a really important form of media and that gets them in yeah so having just said you need a journalism qualification i'm going to contradict myself now and say maybe you don't um there's so many different ways in you see the youtubers of today yeah, yeah. and you know so whereas i needed a journalism qualification maybe there are different routes in now mm. so uh, i think i think you've got to just try and sniff out opportunity where possible mm. uh, that, that, that that's some advice i'd probably give the final question then which we ask everybody on on these podcasts is where do you see Sports media, football media in the next decade, how do you think it will look? How do you think it will be reported on? Where do you see it going? Um, football, from from our perspective, live football is, is, is the essence of what Sky Sports does. Mm. Uh, I can see, I don't know how much will change in terms of the live football, us wanting to cover it. I think people sit down and watch television for live football still. Where I think it's changing massively is that uh, the kids coming through aren't watching television. That, that's quite apparent. They're watching YouTube, the Instagram, Snapchat, um, and they're sort of taking their content through different ways. Mm. So I think we need to be very aware that there are different ways of consuming content. Um, for example, going back to the post-match interviews that uh, I do, when I first started doing those, the only way they'd be seen initially was on Sky Sports at the end of Soccer Saturday. And then, on Sky Sports News through the night. Well, now they're up on online immediately. They're into thirty-second uh, clips on Twitter. Mm. They're everywhere. You know, there's way they're on Instagram. So that reaches a whole new audience and a bigger audience. So our stuff can find a, a greater audience, but not necessarily a greater paying audience. So I think the me media is developing along the lines of particularly social media. But I think the age 
is changing all the time and something relevant today may not be relevant in 10 years time mm. it's hard to predict but i don't think i think you have to embrace everything coming our way mm. if, if you stand back and say oh people sitting down to watch soccer saturday at 12 o'clock is the only way we want to go you, you, you're on shaky ground mm. i think um i think it's changing people are taking uh, their their content in so many different ways mm. it's it's changing all the time <laughs>